welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Mark chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 20. You can see the page numbers up on the screen. This is at the very beginning when Jesus finally goes public. And beginning in verse 14, it says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last weekend, we began a very important, and as I said then, a very personal series, personal to me, called The Eternal Kind of Life. Eternal, in this context, referring to a quality of life right now, not just the longevity of life after death. And this is, we believe, the good news Jesus announced. This is his gospel. An eternal kind of life is now available to anyone who puts their confidence or their trust in Jesus Christ. And last week I mentioned that the history of Oak Hills includes a paradigm and life-altering God encounter that our leadership had back in the summer of 2000, and after that encounter, we began to reorient the focus and the mission of Oak Hills around helping people actually experience this eternal kind of life. Experience it right now, no matter what circumstances we may be facing. And through all the twists and turns and challenges and delights of the past 23 years, this focus and this mission has intensified. We are irrevocably, we might say, committed to this and to becoming a church community marked by eternal life and power. There's nothing more missional than a community of those who are living eternal kinds of lives together. And if you know Chuck and Candy, you know that they have lived eternal kinds of lives for a long time. And on many occasions, their lives have intersected with people in the world and God shows up. Nothing tells a fractured world that there is a better way, that authentic healing is possible, that reconciliation with God and with others is possible, that new life is possible, and that hope is possible, than a community of those that God is gradually transforming, changing, and empowering so we increasingly live eternal kinds of lives. This is on the screen, something Dallas Willard wrote. The eternal life that begins with confidence in Jesus is alive in his present king, is a life in his present kingdom, now on earth and available to all. So the message of and about him is specifically a gospel for our life now, not just for dying. It is about living now as his apprentice in kingdom living, not just a consumer of his merit. Eternity is now in flight, and we with it like it 
or not. And yet, as we think about gospel, as we think about good news, it seems to me the gospel is often whittled down to forgiveness of sins or life after death or believing the right things or some kind of doctrinal purity or aligning with the right political party or with the left one or being against certain lightning rod issues. So instead of it being about an eternal kind of life with God right now, it seems to me it often gets chopped down into something far less majestic. I went through much of this last week, so I won't repeat it, but when Jesus finally went public, Mark says in our scripture reading, he went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The word there is gospel. He went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. And here it was. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. So let's play a word association game. If I say gospel, or if I say good news, what's the first thing you think of? It often is forgiveness, heaven, right doctrine, anti this, or pro that. Well, if someone says gospel, Jesus thinks kingdom. His gospel certainly deals with sin and guilt and shame and the forgiveness of our sins and life after death. And it certainly has something to say about doctrine and what we believe. And it has much to say about our values and about our priorities. So politics and religion do indeed mix. Jesus should shape our political choices and our perspectives on a wide range of issues. But the good news is that the kingdom of God has come near. And that is bigger and that is grander than any particular benefit or implication of the gospel. And this is so important because it is really hard to live an eternal kind of life if our gospel is too small. Now, kingdom, the word, the idea, the picture, not exactly an everyday concept for us. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, what does he actually mean? So let's think about the kingdom and it kind of help us with this. We have a video that I think explains it well. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running, and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? 
that despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now, in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said... The greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was a king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him come. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside-down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. It's a wonderful explanation of the kingdom of God. To a first century Jewish person, Jesus' first audience, who was living near the Mediterranean Sea, the concept of a kingdom was easy to understand because they were living in the kingdom of Rome. 
They were living under the reign of Rome. So in every way, the kingdom of Rome was near. It was close. It was tangible and visible. There were guards and soldiers on the street corners. The people had to pay taxes to Rome. The people were constantly oppressed by Rome. In every situation, what Rome wanted done was done. And whenever Rome was opposed, Rome crushed the opposition. So the kingdom of Rome was always present, always close, always near. Now, similarly, each of us has our own little kingdom from the very, very young to the very, very old each of us has our own kingdom. Our kingdom is where what we say generally goes. Our kingdom is where we are in charge. We reign, for example, over the clothes we choose to wear. Our kingdom might extend over the television controller. What we want on is on. Now, I have not personally ever experienced my kingdom extending to the television controller, but some of you have. Someone is going to reign over where lunch is going to be acquired later today. You see the point. Kingdom means reign. It means what we say generally goes. So the kingdom of God refers to the reign of God. It refers to what God has say over. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done is done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a kingdom prayer. And Jesus' good news is that the kingdom of God is near in and through him. The reign of God, in other words, is close to anybody who wants it. God's presence and guidance and power is now available and accessible in and through Jesus. And all are welcome to step into this kingdom life, especially those that religious systems often exclude and deem unwelcome, like the poor, the sick, the weak, the sinful, the broken. As the video said, Jesus' is an upside-down kingdom. All now have the opportunity to live under God's reign and rule. And here's the key. Right now. Today. And life like this in God's kingdom, what we are calling an eternal kind of life, brings forth the new in our character and in our relationships. But there's one catch. There's one condition. We have to want this. We have to choose this. Jesus says it this way in our reading, repent and believe the good news. Later in our reading, he says it this way to a couple of fishermen, come and follow me. Think about that. Repent, believe, and come and follow me. Repent, believe, drop everything you're doing, and come and follow me. Turn from how you are living Believe that I know how to live and come and follow me and I'll show you. Cult leaders talk like this. Cult leaders say this kind of stuff and people follow them into their delusional and narcissistic absurdities. But this is 
the invitation Jesus gives us. And the first and most crucial stage of an eternal kind of life in God's kingdom is confidence in Jesus. Trusting Jesus is the more familiar language. Trusting Jesus is a nice religious phrase. In my view, it often gets restricted to trusting him to forgive me of my sin or trusting him that I'm going to live in some sort of afterlife resort and play golf every day. But this kind of trusting Jesus sometimes means very little on Monday morning. And yet the way Jesus sets the table in our scripture reading in Mark 4, it appears trusting him means everything. Repent. Believe. And come and follow me. Who says that? What an audacious invitation. And here's the thing. We can't follow. And we won't follow unless we have confidence that Jesus knows what he is doing and confidence that he's taking us somewhere good. And it won't be 100% confidence right away. It probably won't ever be 100% confidence. The starting point for an eternal kind of life in God's kingdom is to begin to orient our lives around Jesus because we have growing confidence in him. And this, my friends, is the life that we live. Ongoing confidence, seeking to grow in confidence in Jesus. When I take my car in for repairs, I have to decide whether I'm going to put my confidence in the mechanic. When my doctor says, I think you should fill in the blank, I have to decide if I'm going to put my confidence in my doctor. And my decision is revealed through my actions. I trust the mechanic or the doctor, not when I say I trust the mechanic or the doctor. I trust the mechanic or the doctor when I follow their lead. This is not complicated. If I want to sit down and I have confidence this stool will hold me, then I sit on it. But if I want to sit down and claim to have confidence in this stool, but don't sit in it, then either I don't actually want to sit down or I don't have confidence in this stool. This is not complicated. Our actions reveal where our confidence lies. The starting point and the ongoing necessity in this eternal life with God is confidence in Jesus that compels me to increasingly orient my entire life, past, present, and future around him. In the Old Testament uh, book of Proverbs, chapter 3, 5 and 6, a very familiar passage, I imagine, to many of us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. I would suggest to you in those two very familiar verses, you have the gospel. And the invitation is to trust God, not trust self. This confidence in Jesus is an ongoing 
decision, not a one-time decision. It is, we might say, a daily decision, a many-times-a-day decision. It's an attitude. It's an overall posture, an orientation. Will I put my confidence in Jesus in everything? And when I don't put my confidence in him, and I surely won't now and then, will I repent and reset and follow him? Trusting him with everything means everything. Confidence in him with every facet and piece of our lives means everything. Means our sin. I trust him with that. I have confidence he can handle my sin, guilt, shame, the future. We have confidence he can help us with our desires, our marriage, our children. I have confidence when I'm facing a health struggle. We have confidence in him regarding our money. We put our confidence in him when it comes to dealing with our anger, lust, pride, fear, disappointment. We have confidence in him when it comes to doing our job or our schoolwork. Confidence in Jesus with all of our heart requires him to be the universe's expert on everything. Is he? Repent and believe the good news and come follow me. Who says this that doesn't get arrested? Who says this that everybody's going, that's a whack job? Repent and believe the good news. Drop your nets. Leave your dad. Leave your work. Leave your career. And you, name James, come and follow me. Repent means turn around. Imagine someone waving their arms in the middle of the street saying, you're going the wrong way. That's what repent means. More specifically, repent means turn toward God and stop leaning on your own understanding. Turn toward God and stop thinking you know what's best for you. Turn toward God and stop acting like the king or the queen of your life. Turn toward God and stop trying to get your way all the time and satisfy your wants as though you are the expert on you. Jesus claims to know us more than we know ourselves, to love us more than we can imagine, and to know how to lead us into what is best for us. Does he? Confidence. Trust in Jesus for everything. We choose to put our trust in Jesus for everything. This confidence in Jesus is sometimes called faith in him or belief in him. But it's way beyond the scope of the typical faith or belief. When we say we believe in God, or we believe in Jesus, it usually means we think there is one or we think there was one. James says in his letter, and I don't want to be overly harsh here, but it's kind of rattling. James says in his letter, let me remind you, demons believe in God. If believing in this stool simply means I think it's there, then I don't believe in this stool. I believe it exists. And believing in something and believing it exists are two very different things. The original word for believe or faith in the Bible means trust. It means confidence 
that compels action based on that confidence. Now, I realize something extraordinarily practical and painful in talking about this. For some of us, ideas like trust, the mere word triggers pain. Ideas like confidence in someone or something brings back memories we'd rather not bring back. Never again, we might quietly say, around the idea of this kind of trust or confidence. Because at some point in our lives, perhaps, we did trust, we did have confidence, but then it crumbled when what we trusted proved unreliable. I imagine such a story uh, is common, very common for many in this room. There are bad kings. There are bad queens. They're bad because they're unreliable. Rome was a bad king. And many of us have been rocked by the promises of Rome that proved eventually unreliable. It's one of those things hiding in plain sight. Anything involving human beings is always less than 100% reliable. Anything involving human beings is always less than 100% reliable. Government, politicians, family, co-workers, pastors, bosses, employees, the church, social media, the committee who lives in our head, parents, books, nothing and no one is 100% trustworthy. So when people are involved, failure is not an option. It is a guarantee. And this is where Jesus invites us into a different reality called the kingdom of God. I will not be able to do justice with my words to the depth and significance of this. I simply can't. I'm not capable. I do not possess this skill. But he invites us into a different reality called the kingdom of God and Jesus is a thoroughly good and reliable king. He's a protector, a provider. He cares for us. He is good. He is holy. He is perfect. He loves us and he never stops loving us. He will never leave us. He will never abandon us. His kingdom is thoroughly good. Jesus invites us into a different reality called the kingdom of God, and it is different because he is 100% reliable 100% of the time. And confidence in him gradually, slowly leads to a different quality of life, a life of surrender. If he is what he seems to be cracked up to be, it leads to a life of surrender, a life of 
letting go, a life of dying to selfish desires and ambitions. And I have known people who want desperately to increasingly live in this reality, and I've known people who have lived in this reality. And their experience of living with confidence in Jesus has awakened my desire and deepened it. See, he invites us to surrender our little kingdom to him. He invites me to bring the kingdom of Mike into his kingdom and allow him to reframe and reshape and remake my kingdom so it aligns with the flow of his kingdom, which means I, you, we are increasingly running our lives and our kingdoms the way he would if he were us. So confidence in Jesus, when you really get down to it, the fight, the battle, the struggle, the tension, confidence in Jesus is about surrender. Proverbs language, lean not on your own understanding. It's about letting go and trusting that the Father knows best. It's about releasing control because the Father knows best. It's about letting him have his way because he knows best and he is exquisitely good. For the past week and a half, my wife Julie has been in the Philippines working with an organization called Faces of Tomorrow. It is a group of doctors and nurses and medical professionals from all over our country who travel to all corners of the globe every year or so to do surgery on cleft lips and cleft palates, usually surgery on little babies or young children to restore their young faces so their future is different from their past. She's been sending me texts and pictures and videos and true confession time. I have been wrecked by every one of them. She introduced me to a young 14-year-old girl named Chrislyn the other day. Chrislyn was born with a cleft palate. Her speech has been impaired since day one, significantly impaired, distorted, muffled. And as you can imagine, that does not go so well with other elementary and middle school students. When you're 14 and you can't talk, when you're 14 and every time you say something, it's marred, it's distorted, that doesn't exactly fly with elementary and middle school students. We were them once, right? So we know weakness is an opportunity to pounce, to punish, and especially to deflect attention off of us and onto the one whose weakness is more obvious. So Chrislyn has been bullied throughout her young life, laughed at. And I know this happens to many teenagers, but let's be 14 for a second. Put those shoes on for a second. You're 14 years old, and you can't speak clearly. And every time you open your mouth, you are reminded of what you aren't. Well, Chrislyn's strategy was to cover her mouth when she spoke, when she smiled, when she laughed. It's kind of a Genesis thing. If she covered up, less would see her flaw, 
maybe less would exploit it. So covering up became for her like breathing. She had to do it to survive. The world is violent. It doesn't care about one so flawed as you. You don't matter. You don't count. You don't make the cut. So, Chrislin, remain invisible. Live in the shadows so you won't be ridiculed. Then Faces of Tomorrow showed up. So, Karen, you can roll the video.
So from what I understand, she went home, she saw her 90-year-old grandparents, and she spoke to them. And it's the first clear words that she's ever said in her life that they heard, and her grandparents just started to cry. Now, I've wept over this video many times the past few days. I can't stop thinking about this 15-year-old girl whose life is now different. But I've been crying about this video for another reason. This video is a supreme example of what confidence in Jesus looks like. I see and feel myself in Chrysalis. And I see and feel many in her, damaged, deformed, broken. And all the good words and Bible verses from well-meaning people doesn't change that deep sense of feeling incomplete, feeling less than, feeling not enough. So the hand goes over the mouth in one way or the other. The eyes avert. Shame dresses in different clothes, but it's still shame. Maybe you can relate. Yet here are these skilled people who love Chrislin as she is, but love her too much to leave her as she is. Rejoicing over her. Singing over her. Dancing over her as they gently lead her to the operating table where skilled hands and good hearts will remake her. And Chrislin goes along. She trusts them. She has confidence in them. She follows because she desperately wants to be different. This might sound goofy to you, but earlier this week as I watched this video, I wondered if maybe the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit rejoice over us like that. Sing over us. Dance over us. As the Trinity gently leads us to the operating table where their skill and good hearts gradually remake us. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. If we trust him, if we lean not on our own understanding and put our confidence in him. Now, you know, as I do, this is a process that's ongoing throughout our days. So as we take a moment here at the end, I want to remind you of these tables in the back because it's possible as we've gone through this that some part of your life where you're trusting self and you're leaning on your own understanding has come to the surface. Some part of your life where your confidence is not in Jesus. And in this time of prayer and reflection, I want to invite you to go back to those tables. If there is such a place, there's a prompt on the table where you want to grow in confidence in God, where you want to trust him more, to write that out and then come and deposit it in this box. Would you pray with me, please?
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you for your incredible tenderness. Chrislyn wears the mark on her face and in her mouth. We wear the same stuff. We just hide it. I'm so thankful that this young girl has a different future. Her joy, may it increase. May she know that she is deeply, deeply loved. And may you be at work in her and in her family to continue to bring forth fruit and to help them see your hand in all of this. And I pray for us that wherever we're holding back, wherever we resist, that we might recognize that there is no better life than the life with you. There is no greater hope than trusting you and putting our confidence in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.